0: So at the heart of this lecture is a concern of how to read the Old Testament in light of the new. And this is, of course, not a new concern. Um, it is not a new problem. Um, but as this lecture is not a study on formal hermeneutical method, I'm not going to actually extend our discussion into that exactly. I'm going to make some straightforward assumptions. First of all, there is a theological unity to the Bible. And second, that this may be grasped through its divine inspiration and authorship. That's very important, uh, especially for this lecture. (laughs) So what I want to do this afternoon is explain one specific way that this occurs or how this can be observed. Uh, I will do this through a re-examination of typology. But before I do, I just want to Briefly look at Genesis 22 um, by way of commentary, or Genesis 22, also known as the Akedah. That's its shorthand term, the Akedah. And by way of brief commentary, I'm going to highlight some of the textual features which are going to be important for my typological exegesis. So if you want, please, and I actually strongly recommend you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. So, there are four main characters in our text. The Lord, Abraham, Isaac, and the ram in the thicket. Each are essential to the narrative, so that without any one character, the passage is somewhat obscured. Now, this narrative, traditionally, like I say, called the Akedah, begins by explicitly stating that God tested Abraham. It's explicit. By use of the Hebrew word nasa. And it is only used in Genesis here. But I don't want to make too much of that because Abraham was clearly tested early on in his life. The point is that it's explicit. Okay, So there's an explicitness to this passage marking it as a test. And then we also have the very same command given to him earlier in Genesis 12. Lech lecha. Go. Walk. He's told to go and he is told to walk. Uh, As Mobley points out, quite interestingly, this final test is literarily connected to the first visitation from Genesis 12 when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. He is told to walk before the Lord blamelessly in Genesis 12 and now in Genesis 22 to go to the land of Moriah. This place to which he is headed is seldom mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. We know about it because of the poignancy of this chapter, but it's seldom mentioned. It occurs once more in 2 Chronicles 3. One, where it is also described as a mount, in Jerusalem, where the Lord appeared to David. It was upon the mountain that Solomon built the temple, thus linking the place of the Akedah with that of the Solomonic temple as well. The name of the mountain seems related to the Hebrew word, and as David had mentioned earlier, Ra'ah, perhaps an adapted form then meaning something like the place of seeing. And I will return to this in short order. God begins by telling Abraham, take your son, your beloved son, whom you love, Isaac. The four parts of this sentence build upon each other. Your son, your only one, loved Isaac. That is to say, Isaac. And I don't think it's a way for God to just make it clear so that Abraham would not make some sort of mistake as to whom he was referring. It emphasizes the immense cost and value of Isaac and the personal affection that Abraham had for him. And I think that is very, very important to the text. The kind of sacrifice is also specifically denoted as a whole burnt offering by use of the Hebrew word olah. The equivalent Latin word is holocausta. From which we derive the term holocaust. A whole or complete devastation of something. Therefore the use of the knife was just the initial part of the ritual. Abraham rose early and immediately about uh, set about preparing for the trip. And it is probably correct that he rose early that following morning. Otherwise what other early rising noted by use of Shechem would be in view. Uh, I'm also inclined to think that part of his early rise was due to the fact that he slept little, if at all. As a man of faith, he would most likely have been up all night in prayer and contemplating uh, this great test before him. And the fact that he, not the servants, prepared the donkey and provisions suggests that this was something that he would do entirely. It would leave no one else He would leave no one else to help do this. Uh, It was his test and his alone. And uh, particularly in the ancient Near East context, that is very striking. He prepared for the trip. Now, the fact that the trip took three days, I think, has nothing to do with the time between Christ's death and the day on which he rose. A three-day journey is a way in the Torah to mark a journey of significance as it likely took much longer. If you just simply look at a map from Beersheba to Jerusalem, it's a good 50 plus miles. So it would have taken longer than three days. Uh, And that's not the point. The point is it's a journey of significance. Upon arriving at the place, we find that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place about which God had spoken to him. We see the exact same text again in verse 13, where Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in the thicket, And in each instance, the sacrifice in its place is marked by this phrase, uh, noting eyes and see. It is on this mountain that the Lord will provide. Upon arriving at Moriah, Abraham and Isaac then set out together. We get a hint that Abraham may understand more than the text explains. For such a poignant chapter, it is very laconic. We are inclined to think that Abraham is unaware of what is ahead of him. And in some respects, this is true. We are the readers of the story. It's like Job. We know about the cosmic struggle taking place, and it would seem that Job was unaware of the precise reasons behind his extensive tests of faith. We know that Satan had accused him, but the text does not let on that Job knows this. So with Abraham, we get an indication of his faith, though, when he says, I and the Na'ah. The lad, the boy, will go thus and worship and return to you. The verbs are all clearly plural. We will worship. Nishtachaveh. We will return. Nashuvah. The depth of Abraham's faith is evidenced by his declaration that Isaac will return with him. Abraham and his son maintain a perfect dialogue of respect and submission. The recurrence of heneni, here am I, an interchange between avi and bani, indicates the love and respect between father and son, and willingness to proceed with one another by repetition of they walked together. Which in Hebrew is Velehu yachdav. It's just very, very uh, clear in the Hebrew, and it should be in the English they walked together. After Abraham prepared the altar and bound his son to it, he raised his knife, and I would argue with every intention of sacrificing him. Make no mistake. The call from the angel, Abraham, Abraham, is indicative of the urgency in the intervention. Stop. It is literally linked to the start of the chapter in the Septuagint, where at the instance when the word of God came to Abraham to test him, the Lord repeats his name. Abraham, Abraham, or in the Greek, Abraham, Abraham. The test is over; it is now complete. God then says to Abraham, "Now I know that you fear God, for you did not withhold." And here again, uh, say that the emphasis is very clear, placed upon the significance of the sacrifice, your son, your only one from me. Well, I think, Mo, I think, as Mobley points out, it's his last son. Right? If you're thinking of Ishmael. It's really the last son that he has left. When God says this, he does this as an act of condescension. And as Calvin puts it nicely, quote, By condescending to the manner of men, God here says that what he has proved by experiment is now made known to himself. And he speaks thus with us, not according to his own infinite wisdom, but according to our infirmity, end quote. In this way, God says, now I know. In verse 14, Abraham calls that place, Adonai Yehra'e, quite literally, the Lord sees. And we've heard a lot about that in the last lecture. Which is then repeated in the subsequent clause, in the Niphau, on the mount, the Lord appeared. Adonai Yehra'e. This also connects semantically with the suggested meaning of Moriah. In verses 15 to 18, The proof that Abraham passed the test is understood through the repeated pronouncement of the great Abrahamic blessing. I myself have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and did not withhold your son, your only son. So I will surely bless you and greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand, which is on the seashore. And your seed will possess the gates of his enemies. And in your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Here closes the brief commentary. So, before I dig into the exegesis, I want to lay out some important concepts on typology. Now, the use of typology and preaching—sorry, in preaching and teaching is not entirely uncommon, but formal studies on it are. Ask yourself, how many books or papers have you read on how to refine and understand the biblical use of typology as part of hermeneutics? If it does crop up in books on hermeneutics, its mention seems to get only less and less over the decades, from Terry to Mickelson and then on down to, for example, Kaiser and Silver's hermeneutical book. um, The place of typology in biblical hermeneutics is, from my standpoint, getting smaller. Uh, Yet, I think in spite of this, there might be a resurgence. People are becoming more interested in how the canon relates within itself more and more academic articles are appearing in different schools of theology as well. So it's not just one kind of theological way of thinking, not one just, just one school, not happening just in, say, America. It seems to be happening in different places. <clears throat> and I think one of the reasons that typology may have fallen into difficult times, and I'm putting aside higher uh, critical reasoning, <clears throat> is that it's not always used correctly, and often lapses into allegory through fanciful interpretations of symbolism events. So, in one respect, today I wish to have us take another look at the use of typology in the interpretation of Genesis 22. And I shall start by first defining my terms, which is essential in the application of typological exegesis, and probably about anything. (laughs) In so doing, I will hopefully create some healthy and inbuilt guards against allegorizing of people and events, and I think that that helps to uh, divorce them, uh, these allegorization divorces from the historical foundation upon which these things exist. So I'm going to also demonstrate that multiple types operate at the same time within a narrative and on different planes of thought or levels of understanding. This is not a purely academic exercise. And I think it's a very important component of rightly dividing the word So, as to explain God's redemptive acts in history. And I will employ some terminology from Ribbons on categorization, sorry, on categorizing different types to help show how the main characters of the text and its teaching fit together. Now, the definition of terms is essential in a critical examination of typology, as I've said. The term typology, I think, suffers from the problem of being defined by different people in different ways, over a large span of time. And I think too often authors assume to know what it means. We think, oh, okay, I know, I'm doing typology. Uh, Don't define it carefully, and then we go on to exegete the text and get involved in allegory and symbolization and what have you. And so then it becomes puzzling, what is typology? We go back to trying to define what typology is. And, uh, of course, we have many examples from the church fathers who... uh, began with typological exegesis and then began to do allegorization. And we think, well, what's the the difference between the two? And then we have the famous article by um, James Barr that basically tries to point out, well, they're actually the same thing. I'm going to define it with a number of sentences because um, of all of this. So within the context of Scripture, a type is a real person, event, action, or institution that is signified in a later person, event, action, or institution known as an antitype. Fritsch limits this to only within Christianity, uh, but I don't think that's careful. I limit this to biblical revelation, uh, which is I think partly how Mickelson does it. Uh, The correspondence between the type and the antitype is one of, to borrow uh, Ribbon's phrase, iconic mimesis which means it's not symbolic. There's a genuine connection between what the text said and the spiritual meaning discerned through contemplation of the text. The historical reality of the type and its meaningful occurrence within the divine plan must have been evident to the earlier interpreter so that although the anti-type elucidates the significance of the fact of the type, the 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 instance of the type would have functioned at the same level of existential reality as part of divine revelation. Typology, quote, consists in comparison of facts, end quote. So inherent to typology is a biblical cohesion to the biblical narrative and text. Furthermore, the antitype is not a coincidence of signification. The significance of the factual type was intended within the historical reality of the typological person, event, or institution. So in short, the point of the type was the anti-type. Yet the truth value of the type is not lost simply because of the derived significance. The didactic and existential function of the type was meaningful to the type within its occasion, just as the antitype was meaningful within its occasion while also bearing the clarity of what I would call anti-typification of relevant earlier types. As Kaiser and Silver note, quote, the most essential characteristic of a type is that it is divinely designated. (coughs) I I want to also be clear that typology does not permit hidden meaning, unlike allegory. As Bill points out, quote, it does not read into the text a different or higher sense, but draws out from it a different or higher application of the same sense. End quote. This is essential in the difference between typology and allegory. There must be correspondence in both fact and significance. The typological interpretation is read As an exegetical act within the canon of divine revelation of scripture, not found from outside of the exegesis. So, otherwise, uh, if external symbols are used to provide the meaning of the text, this would be a form of typological eisegesis. So what I've done here is more than what Fairbairn and Gopelt and Davidson suggest with the use of prefiguration. Yes, it's prefiguration. I agree there is a prophetic bent to these types and that they are in the Old Testament. But this, I think, can have an over-limiting effect uh, that is not entirely warranted. Their approach served its purpose as a response to historical criticism, but there is more to the study of typology than prefiguration. Therefore, a type must be concerned with historical facts and also correspond with proper significance and correspondence to biblical principles, uh, quote, principles, patterns, and structures rather than parallel details, end quote. The outworking of God's redemptive historical plan must be central in the typological interpretation. Now, the way that types have significance to an antitype, to, to, to antitypes, is different between them. Not only do types have different antitypes, but they are of a different kind. Kaiser and Silver refer to a type as a reference to, quote, an illustration, an example, or a pattern in God's activity in the history of his people Israel and the church through persons, events, or institutions. And Ribbons comes along, and he maps these three different kinds of divine activity, illustration, example, and pattern, and he uses, uh, and he calls them iconic mimesis, and he uses the categories Christological, Tropological, and Homological. Okay? A Christological type is not as straightforward as it might sound it is specifically defined as first having a heightening or this German word, steigerung. It's an escalation, an intensification, which is a progression of the details of the type to those of the antitype. So the type type, progresses and heightens or intensifies in the antitype. And that would be a Christological type. This type inheres a prophetic foreshadowing or prefigurative character to it. And this is obvious when made with reference to the coming of Christ. As Ribbons explains, the significance of the type drives forward in the Old Testament seeking resolution, reapplication, or fulfillment. Quote. For example, the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 finds its fulfillment and intensification in the expiatory atonement of Christ the second category is tropological which is a fancy word for saying it's exemplary it it gives us an example of something in this category we are given an example of moral or immoral activity and in spite of being rarely mentioned it is actually one of the most common use of types in the New Testament This category then logically only relates to persons and not institutions or events because it's related to moral activity. And the third and last category is homological. And this category is for types of similar persons and events that have a certain pattern to them. Uh, There is, however, no sense of escalation or moral pedagogy. Uh, The relationship between the type and the the anti-type may be of different kind but must share similarities for example simple example the gathering of the people of God together for worship and prayer is typical of the New Testament imperative to not forsake the assembling of the saints Hebrews 10.25 how this is worked out within each culture differs much like the nature of the church in the Old Testament differed than how we meet today in the UK which differs from church to church again the point here is that we are to meet together for worship and praise that is the pattern So what I hope I've done is highlighted in the commentary and introduced typology. In the commentary, I um, highlighted some textual clues as to what ways Abraham is a type. In a number of different ways, he was a type of Christ. And I think this is also clear from the New Testament interpretation of him. First, Although numerous other individuals within the Old Testament undergo testing, which of them are tested in such a manner and succeed? In spite of his failings in previous chapters, such as lying to Pharaoh and Abimelech and taking Hagar to bring about the promise, etc., which, which test does more, well, I think these do more to show his fallen nature than to idealize him, the test in Genesis 22 was a resounding success akin to his obedience to leave Ur, the Chaldeans. He did leave, and he did go. Within its immediate context, Abraham finally becomes the model individual who will do as the Lord requires. He demonstrates a striking and unwavering obedience. This action to give up all he holds most precious, in dissonance, I add, with the promise to bless many nations through his seat, it didn't seem to make sense, Isaac, being his last and only son, marks for the Christian reader a type of Christ's obedience before the Father. It is typical of true obedience. If we wish to place this in close proximity to Calvary, seeing as the context of Genesis 22 warrants a sacrificial leitmotif, then Christ's obedience to offer himself up in the Garden of Gethsemane is an escalation or a heightening of Abraham's obedience. Second, and perhaps an even more prominent way that Abraham is a type of Christ, is the nature of his, of his faith, which gave rise to his obedience. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verses 18 to 19, speaks of Abraham's faith within the specific situation of Genesis 22. Abraham did not simply act out his obedience as lip service, desperately hoping the whole drama would have an alternate happy ending like an action film where, you know, American action film and everybody survives at the end and all the good guys all survive and all the baddies are gone that's not the idea I think that we ought to get from Genesis 22 he intended to take his son and sacrifice him as an obedient act to the Lord Abraham had a keen grasp of the situation The motivating principle by which Abraham offered up his only son was by placing his trust in the God who called him to walk blamelessly before him. Harkening back to Genesis 17. We get a glimpse of this in the text. When he and Isaac set off alone and left the two servants, he said to them, God will provide a lamb for himself for a sacrifice. And I do not believe he was referring to the ram in the thicket at all. That would have been disingenuous as well. And if he knew there was a ram awaiting, them, why didn't he say so? Why did he say lamb? They are two different words. The text leaves us wondering much about what, was, what Abraham was thinking. Hebrews holds a measure of clarity on this. The kind of faith that Abraham had when he was being tested was the kind that according to Hebrews 11.19 could raise people from the dead. Abraham believed that God was able to raise his one and only son from the dead. It does not say that he would or will raise Isaac from the dead. The predicate is inferred, but simply that God was able. It was within the provenance of his power to do so. And the final clause of the sentence reads, For this reason he also figuratively speaking received him back, or as the NIV nicely puts it, And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. From this, we may deduce that in his mind, Isaac died and was also raised from the dead. The little Greek adverb, othen, has a sense of purpose. It coordinates the relative cause. Abraham's faith was a composite of death and resurrection, with the result that he would receive back his son. This is in spite of the use of the word komitso, meaning simply to receive something. I think we may surmise that Abraham believed he would receive back his son very soon after the sacrifice. The word to receive back versus just receive is anakomitso, also meaning revive. But this is simply receive. And it is also not passive voice, but active in meaning. The textual clue is that Abraham said to his servants, wait here while we and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. He expected to return with Isaac, yet he also intended to bring down the knife. So Abraham typified resurrection faith when no one had yet been resurrected. In his mind, Isaac was dead, raised up and back in his father's presence. He believed God would be true to his word and promise in spite of the incredible circumstance and he trusted God enough to give up his most precious possession. All of this is heightened or escalated, intensified in the antitypical person and work of Christ. There is a progression or development of this kind of faith. Christ was very clear to his disciples that he would be crucified and on the third day be raised up very explicit. He told so many people that the temple of his body would be destroyed and raised up on the third day that it was used against him in his kangaroo trial. His resurrection faith was not set in vagaries. It was clearly articulated if not grasped and understood at first by his followers. Whereas Abraham's is prefigurative of it. A third way that Abraham is a type of Christ was his role as a high priest an act which itself foreordained the high priest and the Levitical priesthood. The annual festivals, such as, for example, the Day of Atonement, known as the Yom Kippur, was officiated over by the high priest. The purpose of the high priest was to present the people to God as cleansed. Whereas the prophet comes down from the temple as God's representative, the priest goes up into the temple on behalf of the people. Abraham's role in this respect is rather shadowy and I think finds a better model in that of the temple system which was abrogated of course in Christ's superior priesthood the author of Hebrews is at pains to show how Christ is superior and in fulfillment of these things of which Christ is the anti-type of numerous different temple types Christ was both the Pascal Lamb offering himself up as a better sacrifice for sins a sufficient one at that and also of a better high, uh, a better priesthood, uh, after the order of Melchizedek, and of which Abraham also typified in the Akedah. So in a prototypical way, Abraham was a high priest, making an offering to the Lord, much like the high priest would later offer, um, uh, offer up sacrifices, all of which would be later signified in the atoning work of Christ. We now turn to the figure of Isaac, who is evidently a type of christ through his obedience to his father. And I think often the immediate typological connection is to that of a son being sacrificed. But before we get there, I want to first indicate some of the subtle details that convey his obedience as a son. First, Isaac is more than likely a man in modern terminology. He is referred to in the text as a -ah, na'ar, which is not necessarily a boy, but a young man, up to and perhaps over the age of 30. Jewish tradition puts him at the age of 37. As an unmarried man, living in his father's household, he is rightly called a Na'ar. Second, he seems to grasp the gravity of the situation, unlike a boy who might not. He understands what is required of sacrificial worship, wood, fire, and the sacrifice itself. Abraham's response was, God will provide for himself a lamb offering, my son, and this is very interesting. Some exegetes would take the Bani, my son, as a vocative. So that Abraham was clear in his response that the offering was Isaac himself. So Abraham was saying, you are the offering to which Isaac walked with him. Jewish tradition records that Isaac clearly grasped the gravity of the situation. And in fact, church tradition too. Upon being placed upon the sacrificial altar he asked his father to bind him lest he struggle to get free in a moment of weakness. So Isaac could have resisted his father but he instead submitted to his will trusting him with the ultimate sacrifice not as a scared boy incapable of fleeing his father but self-aware or as Chiltern puts it quote, an intelligent victim end quote. Once Abraham had laid up the wood He then bound his son Isaac upon it, and the Hebrew word is akad, to bind, from which this story is known as the akada, the binding, and it is the only instance of this word. I argue that the binding of Isaac to the word sacrifice is typical of Christ being nailed to the tree. Isaac was obedient to the instructions of his father. He did not fight back, but gave himself willingly as an offering to God there is a marked sense of heightening as the antitype provides the significance for the historical binding of Isaac. As Isaac was bound to the sacrificial wood, Christ was nailed to a wooden instrument of torture unto death. As Isaac submitted to the will of his father, so Christ, as the eternal son of God incarnate, submitted to the will of his heavenly father. The second Christological type is that Isaac was the son of Abraham. It is not simply that he was a son, but the son of blessing, that is, of Abraham. And I think this is often overlooked as a type. The Gospel of Matthew begins, and we heard earlier Philip say, it begins the genealogy of Jesus in this way. The record of the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The actual genealogical account begins in verse 2. The first verse reads as a title. Jesus was not only the messianic king of Israel, typified in David, for example, but a better son of blessing through whom all the nations would be blessed. In this sense, he is the true son of Abraham, not Isaac. And this may not be the end of the types for Isaac. anger very helpfully adds that both the early lives of Jesus and Isaac are quite similar. Quote, "...both are promised children conceived under extraordinary circumstances." Beloved sons who go obediently to the sacrificial deaths at the season of Passover at Jerusalem at the hands of their respective fathers for redemptive purposes." Now this is probably the limit to the Christological types of Isaac. Much like metaphors break down, so do types have limits, which I think naturally guards against lapsing into allegory. We might add that Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice as did Jesus. But then what do we make of Simon of Cyrene? How much are we to make of the wood? As we all probably know, the great allegorist Justin Martyr saw the cross in just about every single piece of wood in the Old Testament. The other way that Isaac is a type is tropologically. You can now start to see the layers. We have Christological, now I'm talking about tropological types. Exemplary types. Things that are examples for us. As the backstory of Isaac a grown man holds true, he is an example of exemplary living by offering himself up as a living sacrifice. His obedience to make a complete and whole sacrifice of himself to the Lord is significant in the Pauline imperative concerning godly living. Consider the words of Romans 12.1. Then I encourage you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your reasonable service of worship. Isaac is an example of how a living sacrifice works. It is placing oneself on the altar of God and making a complete sacrifice of oneself. He was bound to the altar. Nothing less than complete wholehearted obedience to the ways of the Lord is what is asked. If there is no death in the sacrifice, then it is not a sacrifice. If we climb onto the altar with the intent of not dying to self and God, then what are we doing? This is the way that Isaac's sacrifice perhaps may be understood as a topological type. The other very significant character, as I mentioned in the commentary, is that of the ram in the thicket. I think in some respects this is the clearest type of them all. The only physical death on Moriah that day was that of the ram, I do not believe any real significance ought to be made of the difference between lamb, say, and ram, ayil, beside what I have already mentioned. Both were used in the sacrificial system as offerings to the Lord. It connects with the temple sacrificial system that was centrally instituted in the same location many centuries later under Moses. The Levitical cult finds a heightened escalation in the final atoning sacrifice of the person of Jesus on Calvary. Besides all the types within that system, by just taking the ram that Abraham offered up, we are then able to connect all the anti-types within the temple cult system to that which it relates. Relevance should also be upon the unexpected nature of divine provision. Abraham lifted up his eyes and then saw the ram in the thicket. He did not notice it before. Said another way, his eyes were obscured from seeing the ram in the thicket. The Lord showed him what the sacrifice was to be, but only after offering up all that was most precious to him. Moreover, should Isaac have been slain, it would not have been—I'm oh sorry—it would have carried with it the significance derived from the offering of the ram. Isaac would have been an insufficient sacrifice, contrary to Jewish interpretation. He was not a perfect man. His death would have been a waste. The incense of the ram carried greater Christological significance than a son of Adam. And what I wish to emphasize here is the typological signification derived from an innocent ram, which had done nothing wrong. I think this points to Christ more than the sacrifice of Isaac. Now let me briefly point out something here with respect to the temple system and the diachronic use of typology, just briefly. The ram that Abraham offered up is a Christological type, greatly intensified in Christ. But before it was a Christological type per se, it had what I call anti-typification within the temple system. That is to say, an early anti-type possessed a typological property. The church in the Old Testament would have grasped through the reading of Genesis 22 how Abraham's whole burnt offering corresponded to the significance within their own system of worship. On the one hand, the worshipper who brought an offering at a festival time would grasp that, like Abraham, the sacrifice is required of God. Abraham's actual offering finds a degree of significance with, for example, the annual Passover lamb. It is not clearly a Christological charity, but one of pattern. It is homological. And it might have appeared at the time of the temple system to have the intended significance. However, and to borrow the phrase in the fullness of time, the actual significance of the temple system itself was made manifestly clear in the appearance of Christ and his atoning work. The sacrificial offering in the temple, which was the antitype of Abraham's offering, was itself actually a type. It was an antitype that still retained the property of type it, had, it, it, it referred to something more significant. And so inherent to the Old Testament antitype was typification. This does not hold for New Testament antitypes because of the manifest differences within the nature of New Testament revelation. Typology is part of the interpretative act between the biblical books that is incorporated within the hermeneutical one. Thus, as we reckon with progressive revelation, typology must be able to find its place not only in the final revelatory acts of Christ's coming, but within the hermeneutical matrix in toto. And so before I close, I would like to show how the type of patterning or homology or sameness occurs at the same time as these other categories. So we have one text, we've got a Christological category, we've got a tropological category, and a homological one, all operating at the same time on different levels of understanding or different planes of understanding within the text. Multiple types occur at the same time within the narrative, and that's aspectral. It's just looking at the text in different ways and saying, what is God communicating in this text? So there's not just one type to be found. You don't just turn to Genesis 22 and say, Ah, it's all about Jesus dying on Calvary. And I think this is—I think that um, as there's not just one type to be found, this is how we can find homological types. And this is true when there is a valid biblical pattern, as Kaiser and Silver note, it has to be in fundamental agreement with an antitype. So obsessive searches for biblical patterns would be wrong and likely lead to unsound interpretations. And as I have stated, types have limits. They offer a window into something that is true and that truth would be far more complex and multifaceted than the type being more than the type was intended to teach. Like a metaphor. I see one very important homological type within the Genesis 22 narrative that is also triggered by a number of key phrases. So the pattern of a father and son engaged in sacrificial worship of the son is clearly a trigger for the eternal father giving his only son, the eternal son of God. This is the pattern, and it is observed by Isaac speaking to his father, Avi, and Abraham to his son, Bernie. There is also the repeated phrase that they walked together. They walked together from the two servants to the place of sacrifice and after the dialogue concerning the apparently absent sacrifice, they continued to walk together. And if it should be taken as evocative, Abraham told Isaac, you're the sacrifice and, he, and they walked together. Father and son walk together in harmony and without conflict. We find a number of occasions within the New Testament, instances when the father and son are together. At Jesus' baptism we see all three persons of the Trinity in unison. The Father says that this is his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. Luke adds in bodily form. On the Mount of Transfiguration the Father speaks to the three disciples and says this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased, pleased, listen to him. Jesus always did as his Father desired. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus explains that he and the Father work together. What Jesus sees the Father doing, he does likewise. They, worked, they work together because, figuratively speaking, they walk together. I think the natural inclination is to call this exemplary, that we are also to walk with God. But deriving practical and applicable ways, especially for preaching, to present this to a congregation, is different from understanding the nature of the type itself. The pattern of a father giving his son maps to the eternal son walking with him before his heavenly father here. For example, that Jesus thus showed himself as obedient corresponds to the topological examples mentioned above. But it is not intrinsic to this categorical point. Quite obviously, Abraham is not a type of the heavenly father. Nobody informs a father on what he should do, how he should act. He has no counselor. It is simply the pattern of fatherhood and sonship within the specific context of this kind of sacrifice and the giving up of all that is most precious. The antitype is the New Testament pattern where the Heavenly Father and Eternal Son work together in perfect harmony. What I hope to have shown you all is that typology is first a valid part of biblical interpretation. It fits within the historical and grammatical framework of reading Old Testament texts and provides meaningful significance through the parity of how a factual type related, is related to or corresponds with an antitype. And second, within the system of biblical typology, there are different categories. The importance of distinguishing between the different kinds of types helps provide the necessary foundation upon which to find the right antitype and its nature. For example, Christological types escalate or intensify whereas homological ones don't. By carefully defining what the significance of each category of type is there is a natural guard against falling into wanton allegory. Thank you.